151. It would help if you had that psalm open before you. It's page 573 in the Pew Bible, although we have to do some spade work before we actually look at the psalm. Our title is Repenting Before the Lord, David's Prayer of Repentance. Prayer becomes to a Christian as natural as breathing. Just as I can't count how many times I take in a breath or breathe out, so as a Christian I can't count how many times I may lift my heart to God in a day. Prayer becomes instinctive, a daily exercise, essential to spiritual life. It is, in fact, uh, an evidence of new birth, of being born into God's family. You may remember how Saul of Tarsus, we know him as Paul, was converted on the road to Damascus. A Christian in Damascus by the name of Ananias was told to go to Paul to be of help to him. Ananias was immediately very apprehensive why Paul, or Saul, was number one persecutor of Christians. And to reassure him, the Lord said to Ananias, is pray. But prayer has many parts. And an important part of prayer, essential to it, on a daily basis, is the confession of sin and turning from it to God. Now, the Christian life begins with repentance. It was the first message of the Lord Jesus as it had been of John the Baptist. We turn from sin to God. That is repentance. We realize that sin is enmity against God. It's our rejecting his claims over our lives. It's ingratitude. We are tenants in his world, and yet we don't pay the rent that we ought of obedience. Sin is debt. And the Bible is very plain. God commands everyone everywhere, no exceptions, everyone everywhere to repent. It is a condition of God's forgiveness, of his salvation. Repentance doesn't merit forgiveness, but it prepares the way for it. Repentance brings fruits that show that it's true. But repentance doesn't end with conversion. Because the sad truth is that there's not a day in my life when I'm not tempted to sin and sadly when I do not in some way fall short of obedience to God. So repentance is to be a habit. It's to be a principle of my life. In this psalm, you'll notice in verse 5 that David admits that sin is typical of us from birth. David says, Surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, he's not questioning the morality, the process of conception and birth, but states that from the moment of conception, there exists a moral human person, and that the infection of sin is inseparable from human nature. No one taught me to sin. And you and I do not teach our children to sin. But from birth, we see the evidences of sinful nature. And sometimes we sin in ways that hurt others. 
so that the daily prayer that Christians are encouraged to pray, what we call the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now David sinned on one particular occasion, no doubt others, but we're told particularly of this, sinned in a way that brought not only horrible consequences to himself but to others. There are some sins that may not appear to hurt other people. There are others that do. And David's sin was rather like the breaching of one of those dams in Holland. It seems perhaps just one small thing but all the blood of damage that it caused. And so the background to this psalm is very important. In fact, we must give a reasonable amount of time to it so that we understand the psalm. If you look at the heading of the psalm, it tells us the background to it. A psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. It all happened with something quite ordinary and unexceptional for It would seem that one evening David got up out of his bed and walked on the roof of his palace. He must have done it many, many times. And from the roof of his palace he caught sight of a woman bathing. Now David could not help seeing her. But he could help looking and he could help staring. He looked long enough to see that she was beautiful and attractive. Then looking turned into lusting. He sent someone to find out about her. And the answer was, her name is Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah was one of David's military personnel, actually at that moment on active service. So David sent messengers to Bathsheba. She came to him and he slept with her and she went back home. Not long after, Bathsheba discovered that her child had been conceived. She sent a message to David. She said, I'm pregnant. One bad thing led to another. David ordered Uriah to be recalled from active service in the hope that he would come home, have intercourse with his wife, and that then he would imagine that he was the father of the child. Uriah came home, but he refrained from going into his house and being with his wife. Instead, he slept away from the house. He actually slept outside the king's palace where others of the king's servants slept. When David asked Uriah why he hadn't gone home, Uriah answered, the ark, the ark was that wooden box that contained, amongst other things, the two stone tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, a symbol of God's presence with God's people. Uriah said, with the ark and Israel and Judah staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men camped in the open field. How could I go home and eat and dine and sleep with my wife? Uriah stands out as an honourable man. Well, what next? Things went from bad to worse. David gets Uriah back into active service and instructs that Uriah is to be put in a position in the battle where he will definitely be killed. So he was. What was the position? 
Well, unconfessed sin was in David's life. If he had confessed sin at the beginning, the other things wouldn't have followed. So there was uncontrolled desire, his looking and wanting. There was lust. There was adultery. There was deceit. And there was murder. And David's experience shows just how unexpectedly in a person's life, a Christian believer's life, through private and secret moments of foolishness, sin may come in like a flood. Failing to repent at the first lustful thought, one sin led to another. And that always happens. You cannot fall into a sin without it making it easier to take the next step into sin. Here was David, responsible for the conception of a child outside of marriage. Here was David, a man who had broken the sanctity of someone else's marriage. Here was a man who engineered the death, the murder of an innocent man. But he still didn't repent. Now, why didn't he repent? Well, I guess you can answer it as well as I can. He must have loved Bathsheba too much. He loved her too much. He must have loved the sin which he was guilty more than he loved God. And more than this, he repressed his conscience. You see, David knew the book of Exodus the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. David knew the book of Genesis, where there was that lovely example of Joseph who was going about his daily work just as you will tomorrow, many of you. And suddenly his employer's wife tried to seduce him. And Joseph had said, how can I sin against God and against my master by doing this? And at the risk of his job, he resisted. God honoured him. This David was the man who wrote, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. David had written those words. Now I want to make plain that sexual sins are not the worst sins. But they are probably the most powerful and overpowering. Not the worst but the most powerful. David knew well that if he had hidden God's word in his heart at that moment, he would not have sinned against God. Sin is deceitful. David may foolishly have thought, now that he had abandoned the Bible, you see, once you abandon the compass, the peril to your own sinful desires, David may have imagined that he could somehow or other make up by outward act what he had done. So that in verse 16 he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. It may be that he still went through the routine of offering sacrifices imagining that somehow or other that would make up for what he had done. David continued in this state for at least nine months. At least nine months. And the longer it went on, the more resistant and unresponsive he was to the voice of his conscience. That's the deceitfulness of my heart and yours. So let's just pause a moment and take stock. 
watch what you happen to see. You won't be going out on your roof and looking out from it. But you may, after the nine o'clock watershed, flip channels and find yourself watching something that is very unhelpful. You may go into Waverley Station to buy your Scotsman or whatever newspaper it is and find yourself just finding so many magazines that will fix your things that are on things that are unhelpful. So we're focusing upon something that you know is neither helpful nor right. Rather, hide God's word in your heart and do it every day. And if sin does happen, confess it immediately before it leads to something else. But what about David? How did this prayer come about? Why is Psalm 51 here? Well, I'm so glad to tell you God is gracious. God is unspeakably kind. Because David wasn't listening to his conscience, God sent Nathan to him. And as he sent Nathan, this prophet, to him, Nathan told him a story. He said there was a rich man with a very large number of sheep and cattle. And there was a poor man who, with what money he had, had bought a little new lamb. He raised this lamb, it grew up. He treated it as you might have treated a child in your family shared its food, it drank from his cup, it even slept in his arms. One day a traveller came to the rich man, and the rich man wanted food, wanted a lamb to be killed and to be eaten in the meal that was to take place. And instead of taking one of the many lambs in his own flocks, he took the one little ewe lamb of this man who loved it as he loved the members of his family. David's the king. When he heard this story, he burned with anger. In what seemed to be righteous indignation, he said, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. In effect, who is he? You are the man, Nathan said. This is what the Lord God of Israel says to you. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? doing what is evil in his sight. You did it in secret, Nathan said. God will bring it out into the broad daylight before all Israel. Nathan heard David say, I have sinned against the Lord. Remember the story that the child died even though David cried to the Lord that it might live. And when the child died, he went into the house of the Lord and it says he worshipped. It was at this moment 
that the repentance shown in this psalm fully displayed itself. David needed Nathan. He was God's messenger. If sometimes we're not listening to God's voice through his word, it may be that he sends someone to us. If we are genuine believers, God never lets us go. Usually it's his word he uses, as he might be using it this morning in your life and in mine. Repentance is God's work. If you look at verse 4, the background to it is clearly Nathan's intervention. Against you, you only have I sinned, David is saying again to God, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Nathan's words to David showed him that God was right and justified in his condemnation of his actions. Now, in this psalm, you see three steps to repentance. I want to make it easy for us to remember, so I'm going to call it A, B, and C. And you don't have to be artificial because the A, B, and C are there. First, admission. Secondly, brokenness. Thirdly, commitment to change. Admission, brokenness, commitment to change. Now, they are the essential aspects of all true repentance. Let's look at them. First of all, David's admission. He begins by coming to the realization that nothing in his life has been hidden from God. You see, you and I can do things, we can be living, almost giving the impression that God doesn't see and know not only what we do, but what we think. Now, that was very painful for David. In verse 1, he admits, notice the plural, his transgressions. In verse 2, he recognizes his iniquity and sin. Iniquity is sin that you persist in. Yes, he committed adultery, but he persisted in his rebellion against God. And in verse 3, his transgressions, his iniquity, weigh upon him. But I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Up until this moment, he'd been indifferent. Perhaps he'd even be blasé. He may have been arguing, as people argue today. Well, everyone does it. Everyone does it. You can't watch a soap opera on the television without realizing everyone does it. And I'm king after all. Don't I have certain privileges? He's not thinking like that anymore. He admits in verse 5 his inherent sinfulness. In verse 4, he realizes the real nature of sin against you. You only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. It's not only Bathsheba he sinned against, not only Uriah, not only against the people of whom he was the leader, but David has sinned against God. He was offending God. He was offending the God who had been so good to him. He's no longer beating about the bush. He's admitting his sin. Don't believe there was any smile on his face. I wouldn't have been surprised if there weren't tears on his face. He admits. But admission is followed by brokenness. 
in that David now confesses his sham and his deceitfulness. If you look at verse 6, he says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. He now felt the dirtiness of sin. So often bad things take place in the dark, don't they? At the night time when no one can see. But God has seen. He cries out in verse 1 and 9 for the blotting out of his transgressions. In verse 2, the washing away of his iniquities and the cleansing of his sins. He wants to be clean. He now feels thoroughly dirty. And he feels the crushing effect of his sin. He talks in verse 8 of his bones being crushed. Here's a man who's no longer proud, pretending that all is well. God's hand is heavy upon him. And he realizes in verse 11 that he's grieved the very best friend that he has with him. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Here's a man who has had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been on him and with him and yet that man has deliberately committed adultery, deliberately engineered the murder of someone. How he must have grieved God's Holy Spirit. And he admits in verse 12 that he had lost the joy of God's salvation. Why, there had been a time when he was all the time composing songs, psalms, saying how great the Lord is. I guarantee that David had composed no songs or psalms for nine months. He had nothing to sing about. That was worthy of God. He wants now to put his trust not in outfit acts, but in God realizing it is genuine sorry, genuinely sorry. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And the psalm begins with him doing something that I've had to do and you have to do. He casts himself upon three attributes of God. Have mercy on me, the mercy of God. According to your unfailing love, the love of God according to your great compassion. Now David, like all Old Testament true believers, looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the one who is going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You and I are much more privileged than David. We can look back to the Lord Jesus dying on the cross at Calvary in the place of sinners there God showed his mercy there God demonstrated his love there God displayed his compassion because there at the cross all of David's sin all of my sin and all who believe were placed on the Lord Jesus because the sinless Saviour died. My guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. 
when we sin as believers, we have to come as we did at the first time and cast ourselves upon the Saviour sacrifice. So what do we have? We have admission. We have brokenness. No excuses. If I'm making excuses for my sin, I'm not repenting. And finally, commitment to change. You see, for those nine months or so, David had abandoned his commitment to God. For more than nine months, he had been living at a distance from God, although he may have gone through the outward notion. And while others may have thought that he was committed to the truth, in his heart he wasn't. Now that can be the case with us, can't it? You can be in church this morning. You can even be an office bearer. You may be involved in some particular responsibility. But the truth is you can be walking at a distance from God. But now, David, with God's help, and I want to stress that, with God's help, he prays to God. Now, this is a prayer, remember? And it's when you and I are really desperate, when we really mean business, we don't try self-help, but we pray. And what does he pray for? Well, he prays for a steadfast spirit. That means he wants to be resolute in dealing with the first approaches of sin and temptation. So if he does see something like Bathsheba, he will turn his eyes away. He will make a covenant with his eyes that he will not look lustfully upon another woman. He wants, with God's help, to be in his presence. Verse 11, Do not pass me away from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. He wants to live every moment in fellowship with God. He wants to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, and not to grieve him. He wants, with God's help, to serve him with joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and then I will tell others the truth about you. Here is genuine repentance. Admission. Brokenness. With God's help, and he always gives it, where there's repentance, commitment to change. Now, I'm so glad I can tell you that God answered David's prayer. And it was this David, as Pip reminded us, who was called a man after God's own heart. That's remarkable. What an encouragement that is to me and to you, isn't it? There's not one of us whose life is not flawed. Not one of us who doesn't have some kind of skeletons in the cupboard unless we've allowed God to clear them out. Inevitably, all of us know times when our conscience is convicted. If we realize we've been going the wrong way, that may be so even now impossible that there could be this number of people here this morning. Some of whom even this past week have known temptation and perhaps have succumbed to it. And this passage confronts us with the fact that we live in that kind of world. It explains the lifestyle of some of us. Some of us may not be living a Christian lifestyle. It explains why we stop reading the Bible or reading it with profit. Why we stop praying why we stopped meeting with other believers. It could even be this morning that you feel that God has whispered into the 
heart and mind of the creature, knowledge of you. He hasn't any knowledge of you. But you see, that's the work of God's Spirit. He says, you're the person. You're the person. Be encouraged. If you feel like that this morning, that's God being gracious to you. Satan, the enemy of our souls, may be whispering to you, you've left it too late. What you've done can't be put right. He is a liar. Whatever excuses he may make, whatever he may suggest about the character of God, remember, Satan is a liar. Forgiveness is possible. My reading this morning is in Psalm 22, where the Lord Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It talks about the Messiah being one who finds his enemies are actually gambling for his clothes as they did at the cross. As I read that psalm this morning, I, I remember that I could only be here this morning because Jesus died for me, died for my sin. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty sins. Falling into sin is bad enough but an even greater sin is not to get up and repent and turn to God. And this psalm says in verse 11 and 10 As we repent, God creates in us a pure heart. He renews in our lives the presence of his Spirit and he gives us back the joy of his salvation. Let my final word be this. What this psalm demonstrates is that repentance must be voiced, it must be expressed. In fact, I do wonder if the reason why it's here is because David in some way publicly expressed it. Because sometimes when you do wretched things that hurt other people, your repentance may be that you have to acknowledge it to others. As you look at yourself this morning, as I look at myself, and it's not a pretty sight, is it? As we look at ourselves, as we do that as we ought to do it, we must then look at God and at his Son, the Lord Jesus. I want to tell you that as you look at him, he looks at us in mercy out of his undying love and with compassion. His love has not changed for us whatever we've done. And his mercy can reach down to us wherever we are as soon as we make the first step to him, with honesty, he runs out to meet us. And so my question to you this morning, if you're a Christian and you've wandered, if you haven't yet become a Christian, will you this morning repent? Will you turn? How do you do it? You admit your sin, your sinfulness. 
you want to be broken, convicted, contrite. And with God's help, as you put your trust in Jesus Christ for the first time or afresh, you commit yourself to change. You may even use this psalm to read through on your knees to find that forgiveness. And if you don't need this message this morning, don't take for granted your walk with God because that was David's mistake. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is like light. It both shows up our darkness and it shows us the way forward. We remember how it says in your word that it is to dwell in us richly in all wisdom. We ask that for every one of us this morning, this word may live in us, direct our lives. And Lord, please hear the prayer of those who this morning admit their sin with brokenness. And ask you even now, pardon their sin and with your help permit themselves to change oh Lord be glorified in our lives just as you were in David's and make us men and women after your own heart for Jesus' sake